podcast one production. Welcome to the Beer Man episode, Korea. Uh, Gus Wallen here. Dr. Happy, how are you, mate? Very good. Looking forward to this one, as always. But yeah, another cracker, I think, uh, on the cast today. We've got a wonderful guest coming up, but career, and I suppose how men identify themselves and their worth and how they feel around their career. Yeah, look, the reality is that most, if not all of us, but most of us spend a significant chunk of our lives in some way or other working, and that it means a lot to us. And we know particularly that men identify a lot with their profession or with their job. So, um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to hear from someone who's been massively successful in that area, uh, what's worked for him and maybe a bit about what hasn't worked. Yeah, exactly right. Mark Burris is our guest today, and uh, of course, he doesn't need much introduction to Australian uh, viewers, listeners. Uh, Wizard Home Loans back in the day, now the chairman of Yellow Brick Road, dealing in financial planning, wealth management, and home loans, but also a great media personality. Hosted the Apprentice reality show, and now presents podcast one series, The Mentor, which has now been currently adapted for a TV show for Channel Seven. Mark Burris. How are you, mate? Good, Gussie. Now, Mark, in terms of career for you, um, we're talking about how to be a man in this particular podcast series. How much do you think blokes need to be identified by the type of you know roles that they're playing in terms of their work? Oh, I think probably far too much. I mean, I've got four sons, and I mean, it's probably even harder for them. Um, when I first left school, I just wanted to be a brickie and, um, and play footy. And I grew up in the Canberra Bankstown district, and I just wanted to play for the what they were called the Berries in those days. But <laughs> m- what I identified with was being a footballer, working as a brickie during the day because you could build yourself up and you're out in the outdoors. And I had no sense of going to university. My mum dragged me down to university, so no one went to university. One other person, two other people, um, and I was quite horrified when my mum took me to the university, dragged me. To the university and made me enrol. She stood there whilst I enrolled in a course. Then she took me down to the police academy um, and said, you can now get a job at the, in the police force and work part-time because to do a commerce law degree, you can become a police lawyer. And like that even horrified me more because the police were my enemy. Yeah, you've been <laughs> growing, running away from them for so long. Growing punch bowl. Um, so <laughs> I was totally confronted. Mm. But you, you hit on an interesting point, which is that, that I think for many men, we identify with being something, whether it's a police officer or a lawyer, being a brickie or a footy player. Um, but it's not so much about who we are. Uh, what are your thoughts on that now, obviously, maybe 20 plus years later? 40 plus 40, years. Yes. I was trying to be generous. It was 40 years ago, that, that, that conversation. I was more than 40 years. I was only 17. I'm now at 62. Um, well, for me, I'm much more mature and I have a much broader outlook on life. And I've had some luck. Um, so I'm not driven to prove a point anymore. Uh, just not driven to prove a point. When, when, by the way, once I did enroll in the university and I got my qualifications, I became driven to prove a point. And I, I drove myself to prove a point to the, such an extent that I ignored everything else around me, mm. marriages, children, and that took me through a whole lot of, you know, must be a slow learner perhaps, but it took me through a number of marriages, it took me through kids to different wives, put me in a position where I was always backfilling, in other words, I was um, always trying to make good through guilt things that I hadn't done properly, and it made my life much more complicated because it would have been easy, far easier if I'd have done these things properly in the first place. And I wasn't a person who would listen to anybody, nor would I ask a question. I, I mean, to listen, you have to ask a question first. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and you have to be involved with other people who are older than you, more, more wise than you, like my family. Um, 
I didn't. I actually made myself remote. So I got myself in such a state driving to be um, competitive, so driving to the, be mm-hmm. the best in the law firm I ever worked at. And I first worked in an accounting firm, then I went to a law firm because I did, did commerce law. And I was so driven in those both those spaces that I didn't – I removed myself from my family, my parents. I was married. I had a kid. Then I got remarried again, had three more kids. I was so driven that I didn't pay attention to anything. Mm-hmm. They were just processes that I had to do on the side. And I never once availed myself of the great knowledge my parents had and never asked, never actually asked a question. And everyone saw me so driven, they just let me alone. You know, like they said, mm-hmm. just get out of his way. Well, I suppose you were being successful, so that's probably when, okay, well, let him do his stuff. But your dad came across here. He had seven jobs. He was a hardworking bloke, Mark. So that work ethic, did that come from him? That's an interesting point, Gus. Like, if I look at my work ethic today relative to my work ethic, then there's a different ethic. So my work ethic then was monkey see, monkey do. Uh, I saw my both my parents work really hard their whole life to provide for me and my brother and sister. And, and in fact, my mother's two sisters live with us and my dad's youngest brother live with us. So they, they did – and they never told me to work hard. I was never told once in my life, you must work hard. I was told that you must get educated by my mother and she made me do it. <laughs> um, but I was never told to go to work hard. It was a given. It's just because I saw it happen around me. So that work ethic was right. It was after watching my dad, how many jobs he had and how he worked hard and mum worked hard. But today, my work ethic is totally different. My work ethic is, yeah, I work hard. I still turn up early every day, not because I have to, not because I'm driven to achieve something anymore. I have a different view on work today. Today, work is about, I mean, I went through a period where the harder I worked, the bigger the reward. So I had a sort of effort-reward type mathematical sort of algorithm running through my head for a period of time, which I never used to think about when I was young. I just worked hard because I worked hard. Then I said, no, I want things. I saw people with things that I never had. I want that. I want that. So I worked out. They got it through working hard. So I went through this effort uh, equals reward. But then more recently, probably over the last 10 years, what drives me today? Because people say, why you work so hard? What drives me today is, is this. I had a friend... I have a friend, um, he's my best mate, and uh, he was from Wollamaloo, and he's about eight or nine years older than me, and um, I met him down at North Wanda Surf Club once, and uh, when I was younger, I was a pretty precocious guy, and a lot of my mates were playing for the Bulldogs. When I went to university at Kensington, I moved from Punch Bowl to the Eastern Suburbs, so I couldn't play footy for Bulldogs, or Berries at the time, and uh, I was at university, so, and I, my mates from the bulldog who were playing first grade used to come over to the east suburbs and we'd go for a run along North Bond and we used to go into the North Bond Surf Club and we'd go in and we'd hit the bag, we'd hit the punch bag, the leather bag and stuff like that because all of us boxed in those days. And this mate of mine, this bloke, came to the gym one time and he told me he had a crack at me and he said to me, stop kicking that, they're old school leather bags. He said, don't kick that bag. And I said, and I basically told him, I don't know if you can swear on your podcast. You can, yeah. I said, fuck off, don't talk to me like that. And one of my mates grabbed me and he said, just be careful. Don't be. Don't talk to that bloke that way. And I didn't know who he was. And um, it turned out he was in. The, he went to Vietnam. Um, he was in the uh, military police. He was a Vietnam. He was a boxer for the Australian Army during the Vietnam War. And uh, and I gave him a bit of cheek. And I looked at him. He was smaller than I didn't give a shit. So and that's sort of how it was in those days. And uh, and I did it again just to piss him off. And uh, he came up to me. He said, "Don't you do that again, mate? And you're in trouble." Because he was part of the surf club. I was. I was just a ring in for the day. Yeah. And. Uh, and he came in late and he said, listen, if you want to learn out of the bag properly, because he said you shit house at it, he said, come and see me and we'll tr- I train here every Tuesday and Thursday and blah, and you can train with me. And I said, okay. So he became a good friend of mine. 
and his and his uh, uh, let's call him his nickname was Stumbles because he was a left hander. I'm a left hander too. So his nickname is Stumbles, and uh, I trained with him for about twenty two years, and then he went overseas with his wife. They went on a holiday to Thailand, and he had a massive heart attack, and he had a stroke, and he was incapacitated in Thailand, couldn't get home. Eventually, they brought him back by an ambulance to Australia, and he was laid in hospital for about three years, incapacitated. So he was paralyzed down one side of his body. And this guy was a super fit guy, same weight, height as me. Everything was pretty much the same. You know, great sportsman, played second grade for the Roosters, um, you know, real vibrant, tough sort of guy. Mm. And he had said to me for many years, Mark, um, I want to go into the business broking business, and and I helped him get into it. And he had a really good business as well. So everything's going well. His kids worked in it. And you know what? I looked at him, I said, look at him, I said, I'm visiting him every week, and I used to sit there and I'd talk to him about a whole lot of stuff, and he got depressed, and he used to just stare at the television, and he, you know, because he couldn't move his eyes probably. And one day I went there, and I said to him, Gary, a stumble with Gary, I said, mate, I'm having all this trouble with this business I just bought, and I was having a whinge, you know, because what else are you going to talk about to a guy who's just had a stroke? You know, I'm just telling him about my life, and that's all I could talk to him. He had no life, I just talked about my life. Yeah. And uh, he grabbed my hand and held my hand. And he, and, he, and he squeezed my hand with his left hand because his right side was paralyzed. And he squeezed my hand with the left hand as, as strong as he as did. And he was only like he, down about 45 kilos at this stage, being fed through a tube, toilet through a tube, everything. He couldn't mm. move. And he's a great man. And he said to me, um, he said, he whispered two words. And the two words he whispered was shoe leather. And that was a discussion he and I had all our, all our lives about wearing, wearing shoe leather, wearing out the shoe leather. It doesn't matter what you just keep working, mate. It doesn't matter. It'll happen. Whatever you shoe need. Shoe leather. Shoe leather. Wear out the shoe leather. Just keep moving. Just keep going. Like in boxing, you just keep moving. You don't stop. Don't stand in the corner. If the guy's getting up top, you just keep moving around. Shoe leather. Shoe leather in business too. You just keep working. And you know what's fu- funny? He died shortly after that, about a week later. He just stopped eating, right? Because he knew it was a drain on the family's finances. And today, my work ethic is about, I think back about him and I think to myself, you know what? It's not an ethic anymore. It's an honor to work. Because you get incapacitated, you can't work. And that was a, one of the best lessons, the best thing he ever left me, like, as a memory. Hmm. Mark, if you can work, I can't work. I would do anything to get out of this bed, mate, and do what you're doing yeah. just to wear out the shoe leather. Yeah, I mean, I speak to a lot of organisations about finding happiness at work and passion at work. And, and one of the things is to sort of think not about what I have to do, but what I get an opportunity to do. Yeah. You didn't necessarily get the balance right early on at your own admission, but how do we how do we get the balance, I suppose? I was asked a question today, funnily enough, in my own podcast mm-hmm. by a young man who's got a business. And he's got a young family. And I said to him, First and foremost, you and the people you affect in your life, you must set out to them what the obligations that you have in relation to what your job demand is or your business demand is with you and let everybody agree to it or make some agreement around it. So you're talking about a dad sitting down at the kitchen table and saying right. to the three teenage kids, hey, I'd love to be at all these events, but I can't do everything. Like, and even they, the little they, kids, right, Gus. Even right. little kids. Okay. Even the little, bo- little boy, little girl, because I can't make the Easter hat parade. Now, th- you don't give them a concept up front, but every occasion where you can't make something in advance of not being out of there, you explain to them why, and, and obviously you've got your partner who will backfill for you, and then you say to your son or daughter, even if they're little, or older who have better ability to understand abstract concepts, <laughs> um, you explain to them how you will make good. 
and that you really would like to be there, it's about communicating. You mm. just got to keep communicating to them mm. and keep little, connecting. Keep and 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 for me, I if I would say to my sons today, who are all got the same mad work ethic that I had when I was younger, because they're trying to copy dad, which is mm. not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> um, make sure that you over theatricize the times you are with your children. In, in other words, make it a big deal. Mm. Be excited, but don't say okay. Oh, it's my turn to mind, uh, Fred, and uh, mate, go over and do some drawings. I'm just going to watch, you know, Fox Sport or something like that, you know, or uh, you know, I'm going to watch a movie. You know, go there and actually get involved with the same amount of energy that you use in your own business day. You know, be present, yeah. totally present, and, and make it exciting and fun. Mm. And it becomes exciting and fun mm. for you too. Like I'd be a much better father to a younger kid today than I was <laughs> twenty, thirty years ago. I mean, and sometimes you know I'd, I'd like to do, but I mean I'm too old for that now. But like, uh, but I've got a grandson now, and yeah, I was, was going to say when you, we, we, most of us were going to be better grandparents than we were parents. Well, because we become wiser. <laughs> but the, the answer you is you have it back too. That's a yeah. bit easier. <laughs> exactly, I did it on Saturday. But yeah. I have one now. But the the, the, the the issue is here is be present yeah. and um, explain and communicate. And I say to my sons all the time, don't get caught up in the same shit I did. Don't do what I did. Learn from the regard. lessons, good Correct. and bad. Correct. Yeah, well, I think the fact, because um, we've known each other so so long, Mark, is the fact that you do show vulnerability once you get to know you, and you're very open to that, and that yep. actually makes you even stronger and manlier, which is what we've been trying to say on this podcast is, you know, that old stereotype of not showing vulnerability, you know, step up a lip and I'm just going to go through this. That's, that's killing our, our beautiful young men at the moment. My sons um, sort of see me as a rock, like, you know, like, because I had to, you know, they needed that to happen during, you know, all the various divorces and all sort of stuff. But in, the, in those days, Gus, I never really showed them that weakness because I always took the view, I have to be the rock. But to be frank with you, what's important for them is they can misinterpret that. And I think they did a few times. Mm. What do you mean by well, that? Well, misinterpret that, that you have to be a tough guy. You know, the old man can jump in the ring and box with blokes and then the next minute he never gets, n- nothing ever bothers him in business. He doesn't get, he doesn't let stress, well, that's all bullshit. Of course I do. I just never let them see it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been Do you one- think you should have let them see it, just so that, or do you think that was important for you to sort of... At the time, I thought it was important, for, not for me personally, for, for them, that they needed to see a steady person in their life. But instead of seeing, letting them see me break down or get stressed when I used to get stressed, I probably should have explained to them that I'm not like this all the time. Mm. Yeah. But can we differentiate between being steady and reliable and being there for our children? Does that necessarily have to mean not showing any emotion? I agree with you. So mm. I, I I didn't. I made a mistake mm. at the time mm. and because I just, I'm not versed in the things you're versed in and mm. you only, like sometimes you only become good at these things after you made mistakes. Yeah, sure. And it took me years to reflect on some of the things some of my sons did, particularly my older son because the younger ones got less exposed to the stalwart, you know, the staunch tough Mark Boris guy <laughs> than the younger ones because there's a significant age gap between the four of them. The younger ones got to see me as I become a bit wiser and I actually showed them some vulnerability. So they're, they have some more softer tissue. The older boy had more harder tissue. And uh, what I've had to do with the older boy is actually work on it with him and mm. explain to him, mate, this is how you got to be. I'm not always okay, that way. it's okay. Yeah, mm. you know, this is not, don't think of me as a 25-year-old father when he first saw me. Like, you know, he was born when I was 25. Um, you know, he saw me in my rougher days. You know, like when I say rougher days, more old school. Yeah. You know, old school days. And 
it's not the way to be. But I think that's actually a really important point there because none of us are perfect. You know, people, people sometimes think because I've got training in psychology that you know I've got, I know all this stuff and I can do it all. Well, of course I don't. You know, the fact that you made mistakes just means you're human, like all yeah. of us. That doesn't necessarily matter. It's how we respond to those mistakes, or how we then, as I said, how you then talk to your son afterwards. And I think that's really important for us, for, for dads particularly, but men generally, is that you know we're going to stuff up, we're going to make mistakes. Talking about it afterwards and explaining that or learning from that and helping maybe your son's learn from that is just as important and, and really it's a valuable lesson it's also my redemption mm. for me to be honest mm. with you um, mm. it's it i see it as a redemption for me mm. that i now have to pass on to my sons who i hope will pass on to their families i only have sons but to pass on to my sons the things that i learned about what i did with that were not perfect and some of which they can now see oh maybe that's the reason that particular child is the way mm. he or she, he is and you can say oh yeah that makes sense like, I was only funny, I was only to one of my sons yesterday, and um, Miles was and he said, he was laughing about it, but he said, do you remember we had the house in, um, we had a house of four clues, and it was three levels, and I had three younger boys, and he was, used to come and see me from about the age of six years of age, because he lived with his mother during the week, and he'd come and see me on the weekend, and I, I thought the best thing to do for him would be to give him his little own space, so I built this area up in the attic, it was, I thought it was great, put a little piano over there, because he used to play the piano, and... um put cupboards in his own bed and all sorts of stuff. And he said, Dad, do you know that when I used to stay up in the attic, he said, I used to look at that cupboard and I said, Dad said, think there was some sort of spooky thing, ghost going to come out of it at night. But he said, I said, why don't you come and tell me? He said, because I was too scared to come down and tell you that I was scared. Mm-hmm. Like, and I never knew about that. No. Six years of age. Well, if he had... If he, I would have gone and thrown the bloody thing out of the door. You know, I would have got rid of it straight away, like because yeah. uh, it wouldn't have mattered. I would have said, oh, yeah. mate, no, come and, I'll come and sleep with you. I, I would have done that. You can that. guarantee his son, though... Will now, will, will now be sweet. Well, well, so not, totally. so, well not necessarily there, because again, you were, it was well-intentioned, and I think it comes back to, again, this point, that none of us are perfect. It's yeah. a really important message, whether it as men, as dads. But, to, I mean, as parents, I think one of the best concepts I've heard about in recent years is the idea of being a good enough parent. We're not going to be perfect parents, but we can be good enough. And so, you know, you were trying to do the right thing. It didn't particularly work in that instance, but I'm sure many other things did work. So I think so, though, Doctor, the point you're trying to make to me is, Dad, I, I didn't want to disappoint you. Yeah. I think that I'm a scaredy right. cat. His understanding of me was that's not how dad is mm. and that's not the way you should be. And maybe I should have shown him something else, to, for, in which case he would have come down and said, oh, dad, dad's, dad wouldn't mind if I go and tell him that I'm a bit scared of something. Mm. Which, you know, I don't know whether it traumatised him. He obviously didn't traumatise him, I don't think, but he laughs about it today. Mm. But but nonetheless, as a dad, I'd hate thinking that my son was actually laying up there. He, said, he, he actually said to me, he said, he wouldn't move because he used to think, if I don't move, maybe he won't see me. Oh, wow. Well, Mark, I have a dad very similar to you in terms of, you know, the type of person he was as a dad. And he's a much finer grandparent than he ever was a father. I had a very lucky, I had my mum to look after me, but I was also broken home. So I'd spend time with dad, you know, in Ocean Street, Wallara. I'd go there and I would just literally be petrified that I wasn't with my mum, but I couldn't show that to my dad, and my dad never made me feel, you know, that I was sort of, it, it was it, that it was my house that I could really snuggle in and go to his bedroom and snuggle in with him and stuff. So it, it's a strange one because it's just, it, you don't know, and until you have those discussions, you didn't know that you I were I didn't know, and I was also probably immature. I was young. Yeah. I was a young dad, and um, and I was immature myself, completely immature. And it's funny, you know, my other boy, my youngest boy is 26. They grew up with me. 
after the divorce, they all, everyone was living with me. So I had four boys living with me, me and four boys. And I, what I did was my youngest boy, he was 11 at the time, and I put him into boarding school because, like, it was just too hard for me. And in terms of the, the difference between him, the youngest and the oldest, the boarding master used to let him come home on Thursday night instead of Friday night. And used to let him stay with him on Sunday night. And I would come home and Jimmy, his name is, he'd be in my bed waiting for me. So as opposed to his own bedroom, yeah. he'd be waiting for me in my bed as I got home because I wouldn't get home at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. He'd have had his dinner because I had a nanny that cooked him food and everything. And um, he'd go and put him, settle himself down in my bed, sit on the... Snuggle on, on, in. Yeah, snuggle in. <laughs> and, uh, and I used to think about the difference between how I raised him and how I raised the yeah. older boy. Only a 10-year difference, but it's, lots comes down to the maturity, my maturity or my lack of maturity. Just changing directions a bit. We talked a lot about vulnerability and showing emotions at home and in our families. What about in the workplace? And this is something that comes up a lot in the work I do. What are your thoughts now about, say, showing some of that vulnerability in our professional lives? That's a good question. I'm unlikely to do that in the office environment. Um, I'm the leader of the business, and my view is they're not there for emotional support from me. Um, and I'm not there for emotional support for them. I think they get those things from other places. I want to tell you about some research from Wharton Business School that said that leaders that are more vulnerable and express more emotions are actually trusted more and respected better and have higher levels of engagement. Yeah, that's probably mm. the case, but I think <laughs> in my business I'm highly respected for a whole lot of mm. other reasons. Mm, so that, that might be right in a general sense. I mean, I don't dispute mm. the felt findings, of course, um, but I know that I don't need any more respect from my people. But I know that I could be a little less hard-edged in terms of my expectations from them. <laughs> um, but I'm, right now I'm going through trying to get a new EA, um, executive assistant, or PA, assistant, okay? And because the one who's been with for 10 years, she just got pregnant, which is great, and she's leaving after 10 years. And, the, and I've always had most of the EAPAs have been with me for 10-year periods, so I've had four or five over the last 40-odd years. And all of a sudden I'm meeting people and I've felt this... They've whittled down to two ladies, and I met them yesterday. And I had this massive compulsion to sit there and tell them about how hard a taskmaster I am, because I thought I better tell them up front. And the mate, mate you, don't, you don't reckon they've already known? Well, this, one I said, reckon they've done their research. <laughs> well, one said already that they've oh, already been told that. But, yeah, yeah. but I thought, but I felt like I had to admit something to them straight up, so mm. that it was a full disclosure. Mm. And, I, and I said, but I'm not because I'm personally don't. I just have expectations of what amount of money I'm paying, what I'm going to get for it. And uh, that's and what and by the way, that's what I've always had. And hmm. it's the first time I really thought about it. And um, and then I started thinking about the girl who's leaving. How the hell did she put up with that over all these years? And what what how why is she so resilient? And what hmm. is it about her that I might be looking for in somebody else? Or is it time to do what you just hmm. said? Um, maybe because you know, these are personal assistants. These hmm. are people who organise. Christmas cards and things like that for my family. And, yeah, this is... Uh, talk to my mum for something. She's thing, a you know. life assistant, really. Totally. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, there's very, you know, there's no dictation or anything like that. Mm. I do everything myself these days. Mm. I mean, it's just personal stuff they do for me, you know? To go back to the research I quoted, I mean, you made an important point. Everyone's different, so everyone's yeah. style's going to be different and, and your style will be different to my style, etc. But but you did say that maybe you could be a bit less hard-edged. What, if anything, do you think makes that difficult for you? Because I'm... I, I I guess I have in my mind, I mean, look, I have this view about everybody, including myself, mm -hmm. and you're a psychologist, you're going to say probably in a technological <laughs> sense that's wrong, Mark, but I have this view that everybody in the world creates a story about themselves and they keep um, 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 adding layers to that story and then you believe that's the person you are. 
You know, you create a story about yourself from a little kid and you keep building on it and building on it and changes and moves and evolves. And I just think that's a story I built about myself. And one of the things in my story is that I can't stand being around individuals who I'm paying because I own the business. I'm mm-hmm. paying coming out of my wallet if they don't do things that are basically logical and intelligent. In other words, where they don't bother to think about something. I have no time for that. Now, if I get that, I, I have no tolerance for that. I, that's what I believe about myself. And I also do that to myself. If I do something stupid, I'm really filthy on myself. If I should have seen something coming towards me and I didn't go that, you know, change something into business, I'm talking about business now, I get very upset with myself and I apply the same rules to them as I apply to myself. I try to be fair in that sense. This is the story I build about myself. Um, and I think unless you're being sinister and or evil or destructive... I think it's a pretty difficult thing to unpick the story about yourself. That's extremely confronting. Oh, sure. I agree with this idea of a story, but I guess I could also invite you and our listeners to think that the story's not over hmm. and that you and all of us have an opportunity to write the next chapter. Correct. It hasn't been written yet. Which I thought about yesterday. Exactly. Precisely. So um, I, I wouldn't go and sort of say, just turn it on its head, but let's maybe say it evolves. Look, in my uh, financial services business, um, there was there's somebody who now is sort of taking a much bigger role in the management of my business, particularly when I'm doing the TV show, like I've just spent eight weeks out of the office. And I've been observing him, and uh, he's more lovey-dovey sort of thing, you know, more of a cuddler to everybody. Younger. Much younger. Yeah. But just, look, he's got a better balance, like he's more the Wharton school <laughs> findings that you just expressed. <laughs> Well, the fact if that you've given that. him that role probably means that mm. you're like, well, he's going to give that, that side Correct. of it. It's not going to be my bag. Correct. We, he's good at it. That's and, right. And, and we, you and know that it needs to happen. We, you wouldn't it. have given him the bloody job the otherwise. The business needs it. The demand's coming up from underneath. Mm. Now, I'm not necessarily the one to do it, um, but I've recognised it needs to That's be right. done. And I've put him in. I've been watching, and I watched it yesterday. We had a board meeting yesterday, and I uh, watched him conduct his part of it. And he was getting very good responses, and I could see the people sitting with him they get inspired by me, but at the same time, they work better with him. Yeah, you're a perfect I, combination I, by the sense Correct. Of it. Mm. That's what I'm thinking to myself. Um, I don't know really what it is. I know they get inspired by me. I don't know what it is that inspires them. I, I can't break that down because I've never done the analysis and never asked them really, but, um, but the business needs both. I'm a risk manager, so I'm thinking, don't stuff it up. Something's working, but the other part, which he's doing is great. I mean, I, and I actually said to him yesterday when we did a whole lot of meetings and I said to him, Frank, you're doing a great job, mate. Like everybody really likes you and they're responding in, in the right, in the, from my, what I can see in the right way. Yin and yang, you're working together. He's present well. and he's part of it too. And I don't sit on the same floor as him. Even recognising that his different style has an important role to play shows a degree of wisdom and emotional intelligence from you. I'm getting there. Yes. (laughs) 62. (laughs) Don't change yourself. Just get frank. I don't want to change. Something's working there with with what I do. You'd be terrified to change But there's a lot of bits of me that don't work. So what it means is they won't come and communicate to me when something is not working because they're scared. Mm. A bit like my son sitting up in the attic. Yeah. I think. 
Whereas when I wanted to talk to my son about going playing well in footy and, and, and going with him to a game, he would feel good because his dad's there, you know, like I'm going to play well because dad's here. So I think the same sort of dynamic is repeating itself in the business. Well, I think it's important in this podcast to talk about being a man. Is you can't be everything to everybody. You work on things that you need to work on, mm. but there's parts of your character, personality, whatever it is, your DNA, that allows you to do certain things really great and other things not so great. So if you've got... Frank, in this particular case, looking after that side of it, that will complete that. And then in your personal life, just the fact you're older and wiser, that means you'll be better with your grandson than you with, with your four boys. And I've got to practice more of these things, Gus. I mean, like, it's pretty important for me to practice more of the, the softer side of these things. And I mean, I, you know, I can do it with my grandson, but it's sort of a bit like Jack Gibson used to say, he used to say, Play your strengths and train your weaknesses. Yeah. But the, the first thing you've got to do is recognize your strengths and recognize your weaknesses. It's just taking me a long time to recognize my weaknesses. Yeah. You know why? Because my strengths were so, were so good or were, were just pushing through. Or, yeah, just, I mean, a commercial hit, sense hit I'm it. talking about, commercially. Mm-hmm. But I never really thought about my weaknesses because mm-hmm. I didn't need to. And more recently, over the last few years, I've been getting demonstrated to me by other people. Mark, can we talk about sort of Aussie men and sort of the 74% of Aussie men identify themselves as a breadwinner. Um, with women increasingly taking, you know, on that particular role, it's a little bit harder out there for men to sort of know where their sort of spot is, you know, getting the balance right between home and, and work. It was perhaps a little bit easier back in the day where you just went out to work and came Correct. home to the... So what advice can you give our male listeners around that? Well, my view is the women are equally, like my sons, I look at the girls that they take out and the girls that they're either married to or partnering with and uh, all of the women have their own own careers and um, earn good money, nearly as much as, well, in some cases more than what my boys are earning. And um, my boys accept it wholeheartedly and mm-hmm. there's no issue. So but the, the, my advice is it is what it is. I mean, like when I grew up, the, you married a girl and she, rarely did they go, well, you just started you know, pumping kids out. And, uh, and they stayed and looked after kids. That was, that was, that's the generation I grew up in. Usually the mum only went to work when there was a problem. You know, you weren't earning enough money and they had to pay for music lessons or something like that yeah. or something else. To be honest with you, like it doesn't make – when I think back at it, it didn't make sense. Out of the two, my mum's probably the one who's on the ball. They're mm-hmm. both 86 or so. She reads the paper from back to front still today, still goes to dance lessons three times a week. Um, she's as fit as a Mallee ball. <laughs> she's as smart and she's on the ball. And I look at my mum and I think to myself, you know what? There's a lot of waste there. You've wasted a lot of, I mean, you could have done a lot more. She's happy. Yeah. She wouldn't see it as wastage because she's got grandkids and great kids. Yeah, yeah. But, but still, there was a lot of contribution she could have made to commerce or business or libraries or something, you know, or the arts or whatever. I just know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, but she was never given an opportunity because of that generational thing. Yeah. I think it's great. If I, I mean, if I had daughters and if I have daughter-in-laws, I have got daughter-in-laws, I want to see them become the best they can. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. You're not going to get any, any objections from no. this room. But um, does that also mean then that if women are getting out in the workplace more and achieving more, which is fantastic, that doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be at the cost of men, but does it mean that we do have to take on a greater role as husbands and fathers and you know housekeepers? If that's what we agree yeah. to do, yeah. I mean, I think what it means is you've got to discuss it. And before you get married, just know what the deal is. Where do you see yourself? I mean... Well, that, that'll work well because, you know, my wife never changes their mind. You know, that's, and, and, and women as a general rule never change their mind. I mean, as soon as we make a decision, she sticks to it 100%. Yeah, we forget about it. 
We're fungible. Yeah. You know, we sort well, of I say, forget about it, and she completely changes her mind and then says she didn't change her mind. Yeah, <laughs> but they got better memories than us, guys. Yeah, that's a good Much point. Better. Well, at least is they she going to be listening that. to this podcast, guys? Um, I'm going to get her to skip this one, but yeah. she, is, she is a fan of Mark. Don't worry <laughs> about that. Mark, what about you're, – you're a mentor at the moment. You've been a mentor for many, many people way before you were doing podcasts and TV shows. Just as a man, you've mentored me at times. You know, we've sat and chatted, and I've asked your advice on certain things. Things and you're very open and honest. How important do you believe men to have a mentor, someone that they can go to and, and talk to? I just think it's critical, which is why I do my own podcast, because I can't talk to everybody, so I'm going to hopefully everybody can listen to it, to the person I'm talking to at the day, and there might be something they get out of that and they can use for themselves. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I had mentors. I didn't realise it. Who were they for you? Well, Kerry, obviously, was one of my my business partner for many years. And, I mean, whilst he didn't sort of say, now, son, I'm going to talk to you about this, and what do you, you, know, you think Kerry wasn't that sort of bloke, um, he wouldn't sort of, um, he wasn't a sort of warm, cuddly bloke. But he did always share with me his views on things and way to do things. And I, I'll, I'll give you one quick story. He said to me, he said, and you would never expect this from Kerry Packer, when I did the deal with James, we went through three months of due diligence. They had lawyers and investment banks, all those sort of people, to ask a million questions, did an analytics and you know, blah, 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 legal agreements, whole thing. And then just before we signed the agreement, I had to go and see Kerry. And I didn't really know Kerry at the time. I knew James. Well, I met him a couple of times at James's functions and stuff. And Kerry said to me, he said, son, are you happy with everything that's been done? And I said, yeah. And he said, look, they've all these geniuses out there done all the due diligence on you and it's cost millions of dollars. He said, now I want to do my due diligence on you. I'm sitting in his office, right? And I said, oh, and I thought, shit, what's going to happen? He said, I've only got three questions for you. Now, I won't talk about the, second, the last two questions, but the most important question is an example of why I took him on as a mentor, and I didn't realise at the time, but the first question he said to me, and bear in mind, my, my business was called Wizard Home Loans. He had a contract in front of him that said Wizard Home Loans. He had a check on the desk ready to, for me to bank for $25 million that said Wizard Home Loans. He looked me straight in the eye after he finished smoking his cigarette, and he said, what business are you in? <laughs> and he said, don't say fucking home loans. Now, you know, like we, with my academic background, you know, and I am an academic at the University of New South Wales and I have been for a long time and I've been over a professorship there and then I was teaching things like uh, you know, how you build algorithms and financial modelling and stuff, this type of stuff is sort of totally non-virtuous. Um, it's, it's really very uh, hard-edged mm -hmm. stuff, you know. It's formulaic, you know, it's, it's patterns, and uh, he asked that of a person like me, and I, and I looked, and I didn't know the answer to it. And that was his first question of due diligence. It was three questions, but that was the first question. I didn't answer the question. I did not have a clue what he saw me. You know what he said to me? He said, son, you're not in the business of lending money. He said, no one wants to borrow money. He said, you're in the business of people's hopes and dreams. Now, that's an important point coming from one of the crudest, expressive people I've ever met in the way he expressed things, but one of the most insightful people that I've ever met as well. He cut straight to the chase Wanted to know whether I knew what emotion I was serving. What emotion is my business serving? Not lending money to people for 30 years where they've got to pay you back every month and they keep changing the interest rate and they get to hate you after a little while. I'm not their most favorite person. He's, but what I have done is I've actually put him in something they've hoped and dreamed about. Totally. Beautiful. And Kerry was a mentor of a type. I learned mm. from him a ridiculous amount. Through what, what he, were the other two questions? How do I ever failed in business? Because he's about to invest twenty five million. That well, at least that's what I was thinking. He was a counterintuitive person. 
you had to look at him counterintuitively. I didn't know that about him at the time. And uh, I immediately thought, oh, shit, he's about to invest $24 million. He wants to know if I failed. I'm a risk. My answer has to be no. I've never failed. And he said, well, that's no good to me. I will never know how you're going to respond to when you get close to failing, which will happen. He said, why would I give you $25 million if you don't even know what it feels like to fail and recover? That fortitude, that virtue of, you know. So you're 0-2 so far out of three questions. Correct. <laughs> The third question was, um, was there something I was prepared to do? Would I, was I prepared to do something? There was a transaction he wanted me to enter into with another party, both of us. What he was doing is he was testing me to see or not whether or not I was prepared to do the thing that he was suggesting. In other words, would I just accept his suggestions, his power of suggestion, because he had the powerful $25 million sitting there, which I did. I accepted the suggestion. Yes, I will do that. But then he said, okay, well, if you're going to do that, um, because he knew I would say yes, because the lure was there. Yeah. He said, okay, and then he put a penalty on top of it. He said, okay, but if you don't achieve the thing that you've just agreed with me to do, I want my $25 million back in 12 months' time. <laughs> so he said, I've got to give you one year to do it. So in other words, it was the best trap I've ever seen laid for anybody, <laughs> ever. So you're on three. <laughs> but he was prepared to go along with it. Right. And, and, and i tell you something interesting about that last one, and that's the concept of being accountable. He said, I'm going to make you accountable. He didn't say those words, but effectively he said, you reckon you can do what I just suggested because you want that check that's sitting there in front of you? And bear in mind, $25 million is boogie money for him. Mm. So, like, he can play the game. Right. And he enjoyed this, like he enjoyed this game. He wanted to see whether I'd be prepared to be accountable. In other words, not just good on your mark, you didn't, you know, you tried hard. Give me my money back. You're going to take it on on that basis. In which case, he liked that. He liked the fact that I would still have a crack at doing it, notwithstanding he'd set me a bit of a high bar I had to reach. Those three things, to me, are three things I use in everything I do today. What were the top three things you learned from Kerry Packer, who sounds like he's your well, most significant I, 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 mentor? Straight up. You must understand the people you're dealing with, whether it's in business or personal. Be empathetic. In other words, know what they were looking for in terms of the transaction, whether it's a discussion transaction, just transacting like we are now, which is sort of what I do. I tend to find out what you're trying to find out from me, and I, I work out whether I'm prepared to say it or not. That's the first thing. The second one is, do you have fears, innate fears, and how do you deal with fears? The opposite of bravery is not reckless, and the opposite of reckless is not bravery. It's somewhere in between. You know, if you're looking at virtues, you know, virtue is not exactly in the middle, but it's somewhere in there, and sort of courage is a very important virtue. So we want to know, do I have the ability, the, the courage, the virtue to be, able to be able to pivot or to be able to move on and get on with what it is that I need to do because notwithstanding what I promoted to him in my numbers and how I sold him into the deal or sold his guys into the deal, things will change because they're all assumptions. Mm. It doesn't matter, Mark, whether you can build an algorithm, we can give a shit. That's not a skill I'm interested in. And I don't care whether you get the assumptions right because I know everyone gets assumptions wrong. What he wanted to know is when it's wrong, you have the ability to move on. So that ability to deal with your own fears and manage your own fears. And the final one is, are you prepared to back what you say? One last question. <laughs> You've been so generous with your time, mate. Um, no, I'm enjoying this. This is good. Do you consider yourself an alpha male? And does the modern man need to demonstrate that type of masculinity? Or is it okay to actually show that vulnerability and you know, find yourself a, a bit of a working model, if you like, a work in progress, and you, you've got all sorts sides to being a man? Today, I, I'm more likely the latter description. In other words, um, from I'm, I am what I am, um, but I'm conscious of the fact that I don't want people to feel intimidated around me because of just who I am mm. and what they might have read about me or seen or perceived. Mm -hmm. So I'm really conscious of that because um, 
I don't want people around me who are intimidated. I would rather people be nice and relaxed and happy around me. When I was younger, that's not the case. Mm. Um, I didn't have a reputation, but then I actually went out about trying to dominate situations, more in an intellectual sense, um, know more about the topic, um, be more ready to discuss and argue and debate the topic, particularly in relation to business. And then I have sort of that physical side of me where, you know, uh, I've been a box for a long time. So I'm well aware of how that can come across to people. Mm. But when I was younger, I, I sort of um, leveraged it. Which is not right. Well, but the, I mean, you've been you've been critical of your your younger self a few times, but we do need to remember that at that time that was accepted, really, and we do. It, need, it was part of the norm. Yeah, yes. it's important not to be. I think, but I can't do that now. Oh, exactly. I think it's important not to be overly critical of the way men did things 10, 20, 30 years ago. That's, but I mean, Doc, we... I, I did, I, I can tell you now there's things I did oh, I don't, okay. I'm not proud of. So, and I don't mind admitting that, you mm. know, because, and not, not all the time, but occasionally yeah. I would. You know, overstep, overstep the mark. But I think you did actually that, that your definition of of your alpha male now is actually very similar to uh, just not long ago. I did a sort of a guest appearance on another podcast called The Great Cricketer. I don't know if you've heard of them. It's a hilarious satirical take on sort of loosely based on cricket, but but it's really about life and particularly life for young men. And and they asked almost exactly the same question about what does it mean to be an alpha male. And my response is very similar. In alpha men don't compete. They are who they are. They know who they are, and they're confident enough in that that it doesn't really matter what other people do which is pretty much what you said and i think if we can if we can all get closer to that being whatever being a man means for us which will mean different things for for me and gus and you and everyone else out there rather than thinking it's all about strength and power and that might work for some people but not everyone and i think we need to be more flexible around our definitions and i think that that's something that i'm quite passionate about mm. now and um and i'm also passionate about um, like the TV show, The Mentor, that I'm doing at the moment, this is a show about me being the opposite to the person who's cast in The Apprentice, where I'm, where I'm dominating, I've got the suit on, you know, dark suit, dark tie, mm. it's all in a studio, everything's in my favour. Yeah. Mm. What I do in the new show is on purpose I wear a, sl- a sleeve shirt rolled up, pair of jeans, pair of boots, I go and see you. You don't come to my studio, I go to your business. Mm. And I think a mentor is not someone who is, dominates you, but as someone that just asks you the questions mm-hmm. that you need to answer. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where I am today as an individual. I want to be – I actually – I think if you want to help somebody, in, particularly in business, but if you want to help somebody, you should be – make them feel relaxed around you and not think, oh, shit, my boy's come to see me. And when I turn up without a suit, they get a surprise. Mm. And, um, nice and, I, and my sleeves rolled up. I'm here to help. I'm here mm. for, for, for work. I'm here to work. Let me lift that up for you and take it to wherever you've got to take it to. Mm. I, I can see people get a surprise about it, but that's sort of me more naturally. That show, it was produced, The mm. Apprentice. Yeah. yeah, it was a format. A format, correct. And I was able to perform in uh, uh, Perform in sort of a theatrical sense. Yeah, that's true. You played a role. I played a role. You yep. weren't Mark Burris. This you were is, the boss. This show now I'm doing is more me. Yep. It is, you know, there's a little bit of production, but it's more me. And I think this is the way I want to interact today with people who want to talk to me. Good on you. That's yeah. who you want to be. And, mm. well, you're a champ, mate, and thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Joining guys. us on the Be A Man podcast. I'm sure we all got a lot out of that. Thanks, mate. I loved it. This one's been all about career. So how can we achieve happiness at work. Look, I think we learned uh, a lot of fascinating things from Mark, and not surprisingly, it's consistent with a lot of the research. Uh, I suppose one of the things we learned is that working hard and achieving success is a good thing. Mm. We can get a lot of satisfaction, a lot of contentment, a lot of pride from our accomplishments. 
But I suppose the other thing we learned from Mark, that particularly in his early years, we need to make sure that that's not necessarily at the expense of our relationships or our health and well-being or other aspects of our lives. So as important as work might be and, and, and often is, those other aspects, whether we're a, in a, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, they need to take priority as well. And what we also can learn from Mark, I think, is the idea of bringing our full selves to work, being our real selves at work, whoever that might be. And this is something a lot of people feel a bit uncomfortable with, but we know from the research, and I think ultimately Mark's uh, learned in his wisdom, that if we can do that, if we can find a way to bring our real selves into our professional lives, we'll probably be uh, more successful. So striking a balance, I do understand that and I get that, you know, make sure that you you get that balance right between family, friends, your own time as well as work, so you're not there all night and you find yourself your weekends working at home and so forth. But the last little bit, being yourself at work, I think that's a really difficult mm. one because you feel like you need to conform if you're on a building site, I imagine. A mate of mine does that and he's like, well, I just shut up and get on with it because that's my job. And he'd love to s- sort of say, oh, I think we could do things a little differently or whatever it might be, but he doesn't feel like he mm. can do that role. Like, how do you fit in but also be yourself? Yeah. Really, really good point. We probably don't need to bring 100% ourselves up to our work 100% of the time. Uh, it's not about being completely open and telling everyone every single worry you have or every every single insecurity. We can do it in little bits, and it's about choosing the time and choosing the person. And, you know, there are some people you might be a bit more open with than others and some opportunities to be a bit more of yourself. And as long as we're trying to do that, and as long as we're not being completely, I guess, the opposite of who we are, then, you know, doing the best you can. Or as I said in the podcast about we can't be a perfect parent, we can be a good enough parent. Well, we can't be a perfect person. As long as we're trying as often as we can to be good enough, uh, that's probably going to be a good result. If this episode caused any concerns, please contact lifeline.org.au or give them a call, 13 11 14. The Be A Man podcast series is presented by me, Gus Warland, and my great mate, Dr. Tim Sharp, produced by the beautiful Liv Proud, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Be A Man is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes of Be A Man, head to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or look us up on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us.